you have a Bible and you want to read along in our scripture reading, we're going to take a reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. The book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And we're going to begin reading in verse 9. And read down to verse 20, which is the end of the chapter. And um, very briefly, all that has happened in the prior part of chapter 6 is that This chapter is meant to exhort and encourage Christians to persevere. In the first half, it talks about those who fall away, those who are not persevering in their faith, but that at some point they give up, and it's in large part because of the difficulty they experience um, in their life. And... Verse 9, he transitions, and he's speaking to those who are fighting to keep going. Now, there's a incorrect perception that we can have, that we can look at those who give up and look at them as less than or demean what they've done. And at the same time, we can look at those who persevere and herald them and lift them up. I don't think either should be done. Um, I understand when people give up. I don't agree with it. But life is hard. Extremely hard. I don't think that's talked about enough. This journey of life is really hard. And as I've sat for many years and listened to people's stories, of course, whenever I part from them, I often wonder what I would have done in that same situation. Would I have persevered? Would I have been as resilient? Would I have followed their path? And I don't know the answer to that, neither do you. But the writer here is trying to encourage people to keep going. And he begins to address a subject that in the last couple of years I've come to understand to be more important than what I first understood. Um, I have a, a thousand very unorganized thoughts this morning, and so I hope you pray for me today. Um, I've purposely not tried to organize them, that the Lord would just speak as he sees fit to you this morning. Beginning our reading in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 6, it says this, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the, to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, 
Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That will conclude our reading this morning. Um, The title of our message today is The Anchor of Your Hope. The Anchor of Your Hope. Um, I don't suppose until the last few months that I've really thought a lot about the idea of hope. Obviously, the scriptures, it's one of those words that just appears, it seems like, everywhere. And that was one of the overwhelming things as I began to study this, is it just seems to be everywhere, the idea of hope. Um, But really thinking about what hope is, what it is built upon, what effect that it has on you and on me, um, has been a rather mind-numbing exercise that has enlightened me a lot. Um, Hope is a feeling. I was surprised to learn that. Hope is a feeling of anticipation of what is ahead. So think about that for a moment. You experience and are motivated by hope every single day. You work because you have this certain expectation. You have this feeling that it's going to lead to something. A paycheck, a better life, meaning, whatever that might be. Hope is important. Not only what is hope, but I suppose I would ask you this morning, what is your greatest hope right now? We're all in different stages of life. We're all in different seasons of marriage and career and relationships And I would ask you, what is your, at this moment, your greatest hope? Or in other words, to translate that for you, what is the feeling of anticipation that you are most aware of? What is the thing when you wake up in the morning, 
And it begins, you begin to work towards something. You begin to look towards something. You begin to hope towards something. What is that? Is it you have a career objective? Maybe if you're a young person this morning, you're thinking of the life that you want to have when you're at about my age. 35? And you're thinking, I want a spouse, I want children, I want a settled career. And so there's a sense to which I can remember at the age of 16, 17, 18, 20, that that's a lot of where my hope was at, is this anticipation of I, I wanted it to be right. I wanted to get it right. I wanted to marry the right person. And I had some trepidation about whether I would or not. Will I find the right? Will I make a mistake? Will there even be a person? And so much of the lingering thoughts as I would be alone gravitated towards concern along those lines. The, some, it's career, that you have some trajectory of financial, a financial trajectory. And I think the basic Logic goes something like this. If I can just get to this point of accumulation financially, then I will have freedom from the constraints which prevent me from having comfort or what I want. And so once I get that number or that position, it will allow me to have that money, and that money will grant me that comfort or that pleasure, and that pleasure will satisfy me. Much of what is sold today in the sense of hope to young people in high school and in college is that. You need to find those things so in the end, but the interesting thing is they never really talk about the end. Like asking the question, is it really lead to satisfaction? It's just the path that is so closely evaluated and prescribed. So this morning I want you to think about not what you should hope for, but what you do hope for. And then ask yourself this question. Who or what is your hope dependent upon? So, if you're a young person and you're looking for a spouse, it might be first finding the person. So you might think, I need to go out and I need to search and find. And that person needs to become available and aware. I become aware of that person. Maybe this morning you have children that are not living right. And so you worry and you worry about them and your hope that you have is that their life, which is now shipwrecked, will be turned around. And so your hope is really resting in your child's obedience, right, that I will be satisfied. I will be, my hope will be fulfilled 
once my child does this. Very often people's hopes are ultimately rooted in a change of circumstance. So whatever unfortunate situation you find yourself in, maybe you're like Sister Phyllis and you have an ailment. Maybe you have relationship conflicts either that are right now or from long ago. Maybe you have any number of of problems, sins that the consequences still are upon you. And so you feel this conflict constantly. And so really what you're hoping in is that my hope, my feeling of anticipation will transition from distress to relief once my circumstance has been altered. And so at the core of it, your hope is resting in people. Once my child, once my spouse, once my boss, once my circumstance, my body is healed, once these things change, then... I will be okay. And at often, if you'll, if you'll consider the heart of your prayers, ask yourself if the, 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 the driving part of your prayer life is not really in trusting God, but it is in Him changing the circumstance to fit your desire. But let's say this morning that God communicates something to you. I am not going to change your circumstance. So I'm not going to heal your body. I'm not going to, I think of uh, of people who are perhaps imprisoned unlawfully in in war, a POW or somebody uh, uh, that's religiously being persecuted and they're imprisoned. And we think of the famed example in Acts 16 of Paul and Silas who in that moment had no expectation they're going to be delivered. And yet they had hope. Their hope came out in that they just sat there and they sung praises to God. What it reveals in that story is yes, their hope transcended their circumstance. And so the question I would ask you this morning is, is your, let me pause for a moment, your emotions matter? It seems like it is a a cliche pinata today for preachers to get up and beat emotions and certainly and talk about how you don't need to be controlled by them and I'll echo that sentiment this morning your emotions should not be the governing faculty of your life and yet it's true that your emotions and your feelings matter to God and so this morning I ask you what is your hope in What are you hoping for? And who has control of it? That really matters a lot. It matters for your life experience. I suppose in the last couple of years, the last year particularly, 
Uh, for a good deal of my life, I have prayed for certain things. Like really prayed for certain things. Things that are like thorns that have for decades in my life just always been there. Whether it's people, whether it's my own sin that besets me, whether it's desires I have for the future, these thoughts have often plagued me. And I suppose in the last year I've considered more than I ever have. What if God does not answer them in accordance with what I want? How will I function and live? Where will the heart of my attitude be? Now, to make sure we're understanding what hope is, I want to say this morning, hope is built upon faith entirely. Now, let's let's step through that and, and make sure we make sense of it. Hope is the emotion of anticipation. So what you feel in expectation of what is coming. Well, that's built upon the knowledge of what might be coming. So if I were, I'll give you a, a silly example. If I were to say to you on the phone, I've just written a check for a million dollars and I'm going to mail it to you. And so, your emotions are going to rise largely based upon how much faith you have in me and the promise that I have given you. And if you think, first of all, that I have a million dollars, then that might raise your anticipation just a little bit. If you, have, if you know that I have a million dollars and you also know that I have a history of generosity, then that might also raise your anticipation a little bit. If I ask you questions like, who do I make the check out to? What is your address? Then your anticipation would continue to rise. But what happens when all of those things are present and then you know that mail in Bowling Green gets shipped down to Nashville and then comes right back up here to Bowling Green and comes to your house. And so it takes generally two at the most three days. And so now it's day four and nothing has come. And then it's day five and nothing has come. And then two weeks have passed and nothing has come. And you've not heard a word of explanation. And when you're around me, I'm acting like normal. And I'm not recanting what I've said. But I'm not also giving a reason for the delay. So in that period of time, that, that gap between the promise and the fulfillment I want to say this morning that it is absolutely essential that you protect your hope. I cannot think of many more dangerous things for a person in this life than to lose hope. You put somebody in solitary confinement and days pass and they don't know whether it's day 
or whether it's night, and their mind begins to spin. And what do they lose? They lose hope. And the longer time goes with promises unfulfilled, the greater threat that a person's hope will be diminished. And so it's essential that we're mindful what our greatest hope is and what we're doing to protect our hope that it's placed in someone that we can truly trust. Here, this scripture that we're reading before you today or that we read before you today, in verse 10 it reveals the catalyst behind why he talks about hope. In verse 10, he tells us something about the character of God. He says, God is not unrighteous to forget. Now, I don't know about you, but in periods of hopelessness, what Satan uses as a tactic is that he tends to try to place in our minds this idea that God has forgotten us. That our situation is unfolding and as we have prayed and as we have prayed and as we have prayed for deliverance in these situations and it seems as though the more intense that we pray and the more frequent we pray that actually God's presence seems less and less discernible to us. The more we give to him at times it can feel like the more we are deprived of his presence. I would encourage you this when you go back and read Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Because at the core of the psalm, David is pleading. And not like here in Hebrews where the Hebrew writer is addressing people that are exhausted from doing good works and then not seeing the result of their work or the fruit of their work. But rather, David is exhausted because he has been targeted by enemies and those enemies seem to be prevailing against him. And so this morning I say to you, perhaps your enemy is not a flesh and blood person, though perhaps it might be. Perhaps it's just the natural degeneration that sin and the effect that it has on your life and on your relationships. And so you can see slowly that there is like this feeling that you're being attacked by all angles. And so you're growing exhausted. You know, what a person does in the moments of exhaustion, both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, is really what defines the person. We all get there where we are emotionally at the end. And isn't it amazing when you think you're at the end how much is really still left in the tank you didn't even know about? And then when that is depleted, like at one point you thought, I've hit the bottom of the barrel. There's no more. And then two years passed by and you found, no, there's more. And then you get to the end of that. And you're exhausted. In those moments, where does your hope lie? Here, 
Paul is addressing, I think it's Paul is addressing here these people that have poured themselves out in the service of others. And they're not seeing the fruit. And evidently in the first part of chapter 6, there had been some that had just turned away and given up. And so very often, here's where I see this in Christian people. Something happens in their life, like an event they'll always remember, a, a jarring thing to their family, to themselves, whatever it might be. But it's jarring. And at first, they arm up for the battle. Now, here's the peculiar thing. Very often, we think we know what to do when we're gearing up for the battle, right? We're like David, whose Saul puts all the big armor on him, and we think, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And we're confident that this is just a, a blip in the radar, that this is just something that, well, if we'll just do this, this, and this, and we depend upon our own understanding, and we're going to, yes, employ spiritual and biblical uh, methods, perhaps, even to attack that. And so we think... That if we'll just do this series of things that we have figured out, even if they're biblical, that then it's going to lead to a resolution in the circumstance. That the giant by the end of the day is going to be dead. But that's not always the case. And so we arm ourselves and Christian people arm their heart. And they're ready to trust God and they find and grab these verses and these slogans and these friendships and they're going to march ahead and they're going to fight this, but they're going to fight it the, the Christian in the biblical way. All with the expectation that shortly, because they're addressing it what they deem the right way, that God is going to quickly conquer the battle and then they can continue to live as they were before. I bet you've lived long enough, if you're any age on you, have any age on you at all to know, that is rarely the story of hardship. You don't just go have a good prayer and the tumor is gone. Have a good revival. And all we've, we've learned that for, for how many years? We've had good revivals and we've had the gospel go out and we've had spiritual service. And yet we still wait. We still anticipate and hope. That God will do a mighty work here where he'll save not just one or two, but those in the double digits and beyond. And so the writer here in verse 11, he gives us some instruction that I want to share with you this morning. And I'm going to read it. I retranslated this because the King James is just difficult. So I want you to listen to it in verse 11 and 12. This is my translation. I think it's as accurate as I could get it. But we desire, so in the midst of being downtrodden is what he's talking about. When you're in the midst of being, your hope is almost sabotaged. And you're almost going to give up like other people have in your same situation. He said, you, you have, you've labored. That's a labor of love. So you've labored hard. And he says this. We hope, we desire for you to show the same level of eagerness that you already have. In other words, if you have been doing the right thing in your situation. So let's say you have a, a situation that is difficult and handicapping to you. And up to this point... 
You have attempted to faithfully seek God's will and face in prayer. Let's say you have sought the scriptures and counsel and said, what do I do in this now? Pause for a moment and say this. If you haven't been doing those things, then you need to do those things because your hope must be rooted in something that God's promises have have, have revealed to us. If you're trying to depend upon your own understanding for your situation to be altered, then don't be surprised that your situation has found no solution. What God wants his people to do when confronted with hardship, and I would contend that very often the sole reason why God permits hardships even to an extreme level in our lives is to drive us to him and him alone. And so if you're driving to all other things and then you're wondering why God is not sprinkling his fairy dust on those things. Maybe you're not going to the right place and that's why you're not getting the solutions that you need. So the first thing I'd advocate to you this morning, if you want to have your hope rightly placed. then place it in the promises that God has revealed or do the things That God has commanded you to do. If you're going to do your own thing. And then pray that God would perform a miracle. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You need to align yourself. This is what God has said to do in my life. Now it may not have anything to do directly to this situation. I'm talking about yielding a life of obedience to God. I'm going to honor him. And by honoring him, the Bible says in the book of 1 Samuel, he will honor me. So the first thing I'd say to do, if you want your hope to be fulfilled, is align your life with what God has revealed. Here in this, it tells us that God is not unrighteous to forget your work. This is verse 10. And labor of love. And we desire every one of you to continue to show the same eagerness that you have been showing. Or otherwise, keep doing what is right. Now, here's something as a young person that I underestimated about older people. This is a quality that I never used to admire. But as I've gotten older... I value this quality much more than I ever have. And that is somebody who consistently perseveres day after day after day after day. Not necessarily over anything grand, but those people that are just the same every time you see them. That's a highly desirable and admirable quality. Someone who is not a yo-yo and sometimes pours in and sometimes takes out or sometimes disappears for long periods of time and then somebody who shows up and wants to take over and be uh, this exciting person. But someone who is steady and what he is advocating for these people is, listen, there was a time even now where you're laboring in love to help those around you. And what I'm telling you to do is to do it now with the same eagerness you've always done, despite the feelings inside of you that are diminishing. 
I would say much of my generation today suffers in all of their relationships because they allow their feelings to govern their actions far too often. But part of both maturity naturally and maturity spiritually is when you know that your hope that God, I don't understand these things. I feel a myriad of ways that change from moment to moment. And yet I know that doing and living and acting this way is right. So I'm going to do it because I'm ultimately in control of my attitude and spirit moving forward. And he says, I With all eagerness, that word in in the King James is diligence. I'm striving to be consistent despite what I'm facing. To the full assurance of the hope to the end. So how long are you going to do that for? Until the very end. That's an admirable quality. Because listen to me, these older people in our congregation are experiencing things now they've never experienced before. And they may have endured loss at different periods of their time. They might have endured all these manner of things, but then they're experiencing things they never have as they age. And their body begins to betray them. And their life as they look back, the memories flood back. And the failures flood back. And all the I wish I would have comes back. And they must endure the reality that some of the things they hope for all their life will never happen. And that is a monster to deal with. And so how long do you hope until the end? With the same, now listen, this is a grace that God must give you. It is not that you just determine it. So let me go back for just a moment. So let's say this thing that you're hoping greatest in. This is your greatest hope in life. So I'll tell you one of my, I wasn't going to do this, but I'll One of my greatest hopes in life, and I think I've shared this with you once before, one of my greatest hopes in life. I have this image of my grandmother dying, and in in that room, her kids are standing around her, and all of her grandkids are standing around her, and there's just this big group of people around her. She's obviously in the final moments of her life. And somebody begins to sing a song. Everybody joined in. And I thought at that moment as I was looking around at my cousins and my aunts and my uncles, what a blessed way to go. That all everybody was serving the Lord. And that that was her inheritance. And since that day, I've prayed, Lord, I want that so badly. Not necessarily that. You know, not necessarily that bedside view. Oh, that would be nice. The reality of it. And at times, it has been haunting to me. The prospects of that not coming to fruition. And so, 
What do I do with that? Well, here's my natural problem-solving approach. I've got to discover the perfect parenting techniques, you know? And if I'll be the perfect parent, then that'll turn out that way. But you know that's not true. Perfect parents do not lead perfectly to godly children. It helps, but it doesn't automatically lead to that. That's why we can never boast when our children turn out well, because it's much more accredited to the grace of God than the wisdom of men. Next thing I do is I put pressure on my kids' behavior. So when one of them begins to, you know, start doing things a little outside the boundaries that begin to look a little dangerous, like it's headed the opposite of that direction, then what is the natural tendency is to do everything to push them back the right way. And not saying there's not appropriate measures to take, because there is. But my hope ultimately cannot be in my parenting or in my child's obedience. Verse 12, I want to continue because I'm not going to get done if I don't. Verse 12, this is what I've got translated. So you should hope to the end that you not become sluggish. That's the word that I've put there instead of what the King James says. So, I love that word sluggish. I felt like it was just the perfect word for that, what it says. And that was an alternate translation that you could have there. It's not that you give up. You know, very often, um, human beings are amazing at um, sinning with the appearance of righteousness. Right? So, if I tell my children to go clean the room, and I come back two hours later, and it's still not done, but then when I call them on it, they say, I've been working the whole time, and... There's a degree of truth to that. They're just moving sluggishly. There's no enthusiasm. There's no effort. There's no diligence. There's no attempt. They're obeying the direct command, but they're ignoring the spirit of what is required of them. And very often as Christian people, we can say, yes, I pray. Yes, my faith is in God. Yes, my hope in this situation is in God. And yet it is done in a sluggish fashion. In a general sense, I hope that God fixes this, but in case he doesn't, I have arranged a series of backup plans that might assist him in seeing this job accomplished. And so here he's saying, do not be sluggish in your hope. Now, I really want to say this this morning, that There is a deliberate attempt when you become discouraged, you have to make a deliberate attempt to have your zeal and hope renewed and refreshed. Like, listen, it has to be at the forefront of your heart. So when you begin to feel your hope in the things that you care about diminishing, it is not something where you cross your fingers and say a couple sentences in prayer and say, God, help encourage me. You have to be directly attentive to the need in your heart to feel hope. Because it is that hope that will energize your actions one way or the other. So here's what I've learned about myself. My tendency, 
when my hope begins to diminish is to isolate myself, is to hide all the things that I'm that are attacking my hope from people with this thought that I'll just come back around at some point. That never happens. It just doesn't for me. Maybe it does for you. It doesn't for me. Why did the Lord, like so much about what the Lord has done is he's brought us together. And so you might say to me, Brother Brad, I've come to you a thousand times with my problem. And here's what I'd say to you. Come to me a thousand and one. Because we are knit together for a reason. And that reason is not so that we have good music on choir practice on Sunday night. That's not the reason. It is that in these moments where hope is diminishing and where we can look at one another and say, all my hope is gone. Help me. Why did the apostles get sent out two by two? I think for a lot of reasons, but I think at the core of it was because sometimes we lose hope. We need one another. You need to show yourself friendly to people so that when they lack hope, they will come to you. You know that? Like, let's just say for a moment that your life has gone largely untouched by tragedy and pain. And you look around at everybody else and you say, why is everybody crying? Why is everybody suffering? Why is everybody walking around with sorrow? Don't think for a moment it's because you have some superior ability to conquer the monsters. Rather, maybe what it is is that you never faced the real monsters that Satan can unleash because of God's grace. And that God's purpose in that is to make you a person that can help all the people who are dealing with monsters you've never imagined. That there is a place they can go and a person they can depend on for help and strength and ministering. And it's amazing to me. I've been a full-time pastor for two and a half years now. And here's what I'll say to you. It is amazing to me how little hope people need to keep going. Like in a world of people who are committing suicide at record rates, in a world of people who are divorcing at record rates, in a world of people who are just broken, it is amazing to me that often what people need is just a few fragments of encouragement and hope, and that completely energizes them in that broken state because so few people speak hope. Not flattering words, but true, genuine hope. And maybe that's what you are. That's what Barnabas was. That's why I love that man in the book of Acts. I can't wait to talk about him when we get there. His nickname was the son of encouragement, the son of hope. He went around and he gave people hope. And what a ministry to have among people. That you step into their pain and you just say listen I can't change one iota of it but I can help you stand that takes a whole lot on both sides you know it takes a lot of vulnerability on the side of those who are desperately sinking and it takes a lot of grace from those to spend their life not occupied with their own selves and their own life, but with the cares and concerns of another. Have you come not sluggish? 
And I'm going to close. I thought I was going to get to verse 20, believe it or not. Here we are at verse 12. Here's the rest of verse 12. This is my favorite part of this whole, probably because I don't understand the rest of it, but nonetheless, this is my favorite part of this whole text. That you not become sluggish, but imitators of those who by faith and patience are now inheriting the promises. This is just so good to me. It gives me such hope. So let me try to explain this. 500 years ago, before you and I were ever even thought of, there were people going through terrible pain. Has been all of the world's existence. Whatever tragedies you've experienced, whatever trauma you have been through, there are people 500 years, whatever number you want to give, who have gone through the same level and degree of suffering you're going through. And he's saying here, one way to maintain hope is to imitate those who, when they experienced it, had two things. Faith and patience. So later on, he's going to get to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And I'll tell you today that if you find the prescription to read your Bible more a boring prescription that's cliche, I think you're misunderstanding the point of the recommendation. Like when I read the Bible, and I'm, I'm, let's say that I'm, and I'm, I'm a little long this morning, but bear with me. Let, let's say that I'm in a point of being discouraged and downtrodden for whatever the things that I'm experiencing. When I open the Bible, I'm not just plopping it open to learn some random story or memorize some random verse. That's not what I'm doing. There are times when a man is hungry, he goes into the kitchen to eat. When a person is dehydrated and they're about to pass out, They're not just habitually going and drinking water because it's a nervous habit. They must have it. And there are plenty of times where it is appropriate for the person of God to open the Bible and say, I must find someone who has suffered the way that I am suffering, that I may know what they did to persevere. So he says, be imitators of them. One of the things since I was about 17 that I've always loved to do is talk to older people, but not like cliche talk, like ask them a lot of questions. I've always been very inquisitive of like, what was this like and what did you experience? And not like the stuff like, you know, what was it like to live through the 70s or what was it like for when JFK got shot? None of that stuff. I mean, like when you experienced the loss of your child 30 years ago. that moment like how did you endure because here's what I know about my own life there's going to come points throughout my life unbeknownst to me now that I'm going to face some terrible things I don't want to be ill-equipped to deal with those things 
I may not be fully equipped, but I want to go into those things with the advantage of having known that there are some things God has revealed that actually work. People who tend to isolate are people who often don't ever benefit from what other people have learned in their very same situation. Here, he says, be imitators of people in the past and now. But listen to what he says, and this is the best part. I'm done. Who are now inheriting their hope. So, one of the things that has always been curious to me is what it must be like to be tortured for the gospel's sake. So let's say that somebody is being persecuted and they're being tortured horribly. And their life, you know, people will often say, I think God gives them grace where they don't feel the pain. I don't believe that. That's just my opinion. I don't think that. I think they feel the pain. Because it lays up for them a greater weight of glory in heaven. So imagine what it must be like to be laid out and you're being tortured in the most excruciating ways you can imagine that people have gone through. And then in a moment, it's over. And it's contrasted with a weight of glory reserved for even very few people in heaven itself. Why do I say that? It's because here's what he's talking about here. He's saying this. Christian, you're hoping in something. You're hoping in the salvation of your family. You're hoping in the resolution to pain in your life. You're hoping in something. And you're prone to give up. And you're wanting to give up. But remember, God does not forget you. And in lieu of that, have faith. And have patience in your suffering. That God sees you. He really sees you. And imitate those people who went exactly through what you've been through, but are now experiencing the fullness of their hope. Or in other words, there's going to be a relief which far outweighs the suffering of this present hour if you'll retain hope. Here's what I'll say in conclusion. If your hope, here's how much hope you want. Here's what, I don't want to say this. Your faith in God must be significant enough that when everything in your life appears to be falling short of what you want to see happen, that you wanted the person to be healed and they weren't, they died. 
and you wanted the relationship to be restored, but it wasn't. It forever remained unreconciled. And the child that you wanted to see saved, now you're in your old age and you're about to die and they've never been saved yet. And the country that you loved and lived in has not had some grand revival. It's continued to degenerate down into sin and destruction and judgment. And everything in life is not turning out. My ultimate hope must rest in the, in, in the belief that God in heaven is organizing all things in accordance with his will, which far surpasses my own will. So all four of my kids become prodigals, and they run. And I'm on my dying bed, and not only are they not singing around me, they're nowhere to be found. And God knows that the hope that I've had my whole life has been that they would serve him and love him and be disciples of his Listen, maybe God like the Apostle Paul, maybe God like the, the, the King Manasseh, maybe God is wanting to transform those young men. That's what he said in 2 Timothy. I was saved this way to be examples to all of those who would believe after. Maybe what God is doing is going to use my rebellious child to be the example for generations to come of what to be, what not to be, whatever God's purpose. I, I can't even conceive what his purpose might be, nor does it matter. I I trust him. I trust him that if they died lost, I trust him. Everything I have, all my hope is in him alone, not in the change that I want to see come to pass. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. That's what I blubbered around for an hour trying to say. My hope is in whatever happens, I trust him. And I can rest at night. Listen, I can have feelings. That's what hope is. I can have reassurance of anticipating the future, knowing God, whatever, whatever happens, I know is in your hand. And truth be told, that's exactly where I want it to be. If God wants it to be broken and painful, and for me to suffer, I want to suffer. Why? Because I know he's doing, I know he doesn't just, he doesn't just say, I want you to suffer because of the pain. God never does that. I know him too well. I know him too well. I know his benevolent nature. I know that even at the deepest point of your suffering, God has purposes you don't understand. How much you believe what I just said will dictate how much hope that you feel. I'm going to say that again. If you have, you wonder, you say, how do do people survive all these tragedies? Here's how. If you have a hope in God that is so deep, you know that the most horrific suffering that you could ever experience in life that God has a divine purpose that exceeds the pain. You believe that. How much you believe God's purpose will dictate how much hope that you have. So what should you do? Cultivate your faith and protect your hope.
This morning, I pray so many things in my heart today that I've not been able to express. I probably don't even half understand them. Been on my heart for a few weeks. I pray that it would be of help to you. If you're feeling despondent, if you're despairing, if you're hopeless, I, I can't say that your situation is going to be remedied, and anybody that tries to is lying to you. They don't know. But I can tell you this you can find hope. Like a feeling. You can find a feeling of peace, anticipation that whatever happens, you and it or they are going to be okay. And that you can have peace. Peace is offered to you. I pray God would grant it. Don't suffer alone. That's why the church is here today. After that, somebody have something on your heart this morning.